Hey everybody, welcome back to Two Jane Does. Welcome back to your favorite shit show. Can you believe it? We're actually on some kind of schedule. We're recording early. What? We're gonna get an episode out on time? Who? Who are we? What happened? Is this real life? We trying to grow up. We overhauling the way we do things out here for you guys. No, I think this is a twilight zone. This ain't real. <laughs> probably not. Probably won't last very long. But, so welcome back to today's episode. We're going to be discussing the mistress of Murder Hill, Belle Gunness. Um, And if you peeped our Facebook and Insta posts and Twitter and everywhere else, we're trying to be active. Um, we're we're going to be discussing some uh, 19th century gold digging. So buckle up and let's get started. But before we jump in... We want to give another big thank you, shout out to Cassie Malay over at Eastern Crime Zone. realm of true crime, any quick Google search will give you millions of articles, films, and podcasts that you should check out. Some stories are the same with different voices behind them. You know, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, and the like. We often hear more about them than we do their victims. Now let me ask you this. Have you heard of Phoebe Hanschuk, Ernie Ibarra, Terry Neely? Well, if you haven't, you should hop over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and check out the victim-centric podcast, Eastern Crime Zone. Hosted by Cassie Malay, you can learn new details on cases you're familiar with and hear new cases you've likely never heard of. In the most recent episode, which is called The Attic Love Triangle, she discusses how Miss Dolly Ostrich was accused of killing her husband, but no one suspected her much younger lover who had been hiding in their attic for over 20 years. No spoilers here. You have to go and give it a listen. For more information on Eastern Crime Zone, check out the Facebook page by searching for Eastern Crime Zone or over at the website at www.easterncrimezone.com. So what are you waiting for? Grab your notepad, get settled in, and dive into a Cassie file with Eastern Crime Zone. Said, we're going to be discussing Belle Gunness. And before we even jump into all these notes that we fancy dancy typed up, um, we're more than likely going to butcher some of the name pronunciations in this episode, but we're trying, so just bear with us. So, getting started, Belle was born Brynhild Paul Statter Sturz is what I'm going to call it uh, on November 22nd, 1859 in Selbu, Norway. Her parents were Paul Peterson Storset, who was a stonemason, and Berit Olstatter. She was the youngest of their eight children. Belle grew to be a large woman standing six feet tall and weighing over 200 pounds. Remember this detail, it will come in handy later. They lived on a very small farm around 40 miles outside the largest city in central Norway. 
Bell immigrated to America in 1881 in search of wealth, but what followed was a series of insurance frauds and crimes. <clears throat> That's how any gold digger starts out there their fame <laughs> exactly you gotta you gotta get startup cash yeah yeah that's what it is so in 1884 bell married mads did did live anton sorensen the fuck mads did live anton sorensen <laughs> but we just call him mads for short <laughs> okay yeah in chicago illinois i'm terrible at pronouncing names <clears throat> Two years later, they opened a confectionery store, and the business was not successful, and within a year, the shop mysteriously burned down. Bell and Mads collected the insurance, which paid for their home. Some research says that Bell and Mads didn't have any children, while other research says the couple had four children, whose names were Caroline, X, <laughs> Axel, Myrtle, and Lucy. Caroline and Axel died in infancy, allegedly of acute colitis. What the fuck is that? I don't, I don't like a doctor. I can. We can barely do a podcast. Okay. Anyways. Okay. However, the symptoms of acute colitis, which include nausea, fever, diarrhea, and lower abdominal pain and cramping, also happen to be the symptoms of many forms of poisoning. It's an inflammatory reaction in the colon. Often autoimmune or infectious. Mm. So it's like so, so, poops. But could have been poison. Mm. Yeah, could have been poison. Uh, yeah. However, both Caroline and Axel reportedly had life insurance policies for them. And the insurance company paid out. Right. Which, I mean, it never. I never found how much they paid out for the two kids, Don. But something else to mention in this episode is there's going to be a lot of... This is what Bell got in 1902, but this is what that same amount of money would be in today's dollar because you have to take into consideration inflation and everything else. I had to use oh, a handy-dandy yeah. calculator, oh, wow. but this hoe gets paid, okay? <laughs> so, on June 13, 1900, Bell and her family were counted on the U.S. Census in Chicago. The census recorded her as the mother of four children of only two that were living, Myrtle, now three, and Lucy, age one. There was also an adopted 10-year-old girl, Jenny Olson, who was counted in the household. Now, good old Mads, he died on July 30th, 1900, like literally a month after they, they came to the U.S., and the day he died happened to be the day that his two life insurance policies overlapped, so... The first doctor to see him thought he was suffering from strychnine poisoning. However, the family doctor had been treating him for an enlarged heart and concluded that Mads died of heart failure. An autopsy was considered unnecessary because the death was not thought to be suspicious and Belle had told the doctor that she had given her late husband quote-unquote medicinal powders to help him feel better. Because that doesn't sound suspicious at all. No. Not that, like, these medicinal powders could be strychnine or strychnine, however you say it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just... Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Things are already starting off great. She just gave him some goodies powder and told him to suck it up. Ah, you never know. She applied for the insurance money the day after Mad's funeral, 
and his family claimed that Belle had poisoned him to collect on the insurance. So not only is it suspicious, but she's getting some accusations made. Mm-hmm. Surviving records suggest that an investigation was ordered, but it's unclear whether it actually occurred or if Matt's body was ever exhumed to check for poisoning like his family demanded. The insurance companies awarded her $8,500, which is $226,000 in today's money. With that money, she bought a farm on the outskirts of LaPorte, Indiana. In, in the, Indiana. <laughs> Indiana. No, homie, that's more life insurance than I probably have on me right now. I think the only thing I have is like a freebie company 10000 giveaway. I don't even think... I don't have any additional life insurance. Well, since we work in the same place, it's more than that. Is it? Yeah. Oh. Uh, but, yeah, it ain't much. She didn't have much I pay attention to our insurance meetings. And I ain't got no additional life insurance either. Ugh. Yeah, so if you Sorry. kill me, you, you barely gonna get me in the ground, and that's it, homie. I mean, and you better hope I die at home, because if, if I die in a facility, they're gonna have to do an autopsy, and then... I mean, half an autopsy is like five grand, so it's crazy. Well, not to mention that in today's times, it's, some life insurance policies don't even cover a funeral for people. Mm-hmm. So, mm. mm-hmm. So, after she bought this nice little farm in Indiana, uh, she was preparing to move from Chicago to LaPorte, she became reacquainted with widower Peter Gunnis, who was also Norwegian-born. They married in Laporte on April 1st, 1902. And within one week of the ceremony, Peter's infant daughter died of uncertain causes while alone in the house with Belle. And in December of that same year, Peter himself had a quote-unquote tragic accident. According to Bell, he was reaching for his slippers next to the kitchen stove when he was scalded with brine. But then she later changed her story and said that part of a sausage grinding machine fell from a high shelf, causing a fatal head injury. Which, T.O. That would be two completely different injuries. One is blunt force trauma. One is like scalding burns. Yeah. So that's already kind of confusing. Makes zero sense. Anywho, Peter's brother, Gust, took Peter's oldest daughter, Swan Hild, to stay with him in Wisconsin. And it should be noted that she is the only child we're going to discuss today to have survived living with Belle. Spoiler. Sorry, Myrtle, Lucy, and Jenny. Damn. <laughs> So, Peter's death gave Belle another three to $4,000, which is roughly eighty dollars to $106,000 today. Local people refused to believe that Peter could be so clumsy. Local people refused to believe that Peter could be so clumsy because he ran a hog farm and was an, and was an experienced butcher. The district coroner reviewed the case and unequivocally announced that he had been murdered. Straight up was like... This was not an accident. Yeah, Someone killed him. Yeah, he did. (laughs) He convened a coroner's jury to look into the matter. Meanwhile, little Miss Jenny, who was 14 at the time, was overheard confessing to a classmate, My mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat cleaver and he died. Don't tell a soul. I don't know why I put that accent. Odds are she's Norwegian. 
That accent makes no sense, but just go with it. Okay. <laughs> Jenny was brought before the coroner's jury, but denied having said anything like that, while Belle was like backstage convincing the coroner that she was innocent of any wrongdoing. I'm sorry, but children are so honest. Oh, yeah. And they like, don't even realize it. It's brutal. So, she was probably telling the, the truth and <laughs> whatever. Damn, she just be killing kids and people left and right. Well, listen, ain't no kids. Well, Axel and Caroline, they already out. But she's still got three. I Calm down. Still. We haven't made it there yet. <laughs> While all this was going on, Belle was pregnant. We're assuming that it's Peter's child. Mm-hmm. And in May of 1903, she had a baby boy that she named Philip. It was later in 1906 when Belle began telling neighbors that Jenny had either gone away to a Lutheran college in Los Angeles or to a finishing school for young ladies. So, she's saying, Jenny gone. Jenny, uh... She took a trip. Unfortunately, Jenny's body was later to be found buried on Belle's property. Again, spoiler, nonetheless, Belle continued to run the farm... In 1907, Belle hired a single farmhand, Ray Lampier, to help with the chores. You know, she needed a man around. Yep. And around the same time, Belle inserted the following ad in the matrimonial columns of all the Chicago daily newspapers and those of other large Midwestern cities. Personal. Humbly widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, desires the desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Yeah, she's basically saying she don't fool oh. with no broke-ass men. And unless you can come and make her heap of money even bigger, she don't even want you to write back. And if you do write back, you better be prepared to come and see her in LaPorte County. Can we just talk about the fact that that used to be a, a thing? Like, people would put ads, like, searching for a single man. Like, Girl, what are you talking about? That's Craigslist. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it is. Except you died that way. It ain't in the newspaper anymore. <laughs> Golly. Yeah. So, surprisingly, kind of, several mi- middle-aged men of means re- responded to Bill's ads. One of these was John Moe, who arrived from Elbow Lake, Minnesota. For whatever reason, Belle introduced John as her cousin. He had brought more than $1,000, or $2,600 in today's money, with him to pay off her mortgage, or so he told neighbors. He disappeared from her farm within a week of his arrival. Yeah, so she just, you said twenty six, Girl, that's 26000 Oh, my bad. 26000 <laughs> in today's money. Yeah, so she just... Had this guy respond to her ad, she took him for 26000 and he's just poof. He's a ghost. Dropping like flies so, left and right. Yeah. Next came George Anderson Tarkio. Nope, that is not his name. Next came George Anderson from Tarkio, Missouri, who, like Peter and John, was an immigrant from Norway. During dinner with George, she raised the issue of her mortgage. George agreed that he would pay this off if Belle married him. 
Late that night, George awoke to see her standing over him with a strange and sinister expression on her face. Without saying a word, she ran from the room. George then fled from the house and caught the first train back to Missouri. She could have just declined his marriage proposal. She didn't have to be weird about it. <laughs> I just don't think she wanted to go through the hassle. But like I said, she just could have said no. But the suitors kept coming. But none of them, with the exception of George, would ever leave Bell's farm. By this time, she began ordering these huge trunks and having them delivered to her house. And a cab driver named Clyde Sturgis delivered many of these trunks to her. And he later remarked how the quote-unquote heavyset woman would lift these enormous trunks like boxes of marshmallows. Damn! She a big woman. So, Belle would just toss these trunks onto her wide, broad shoulders <laughs> and carry them into her house. She would keep the shutters uh, closed day and night, but people who would be traveling, but people who would be traveling past her farm at night could see her just out out yonder digging in the hog pen for whatever reason. Yeah, you know, just normal. This, this is normal. It's just not that, suspicious. She, she not... could have just she could have been making mud holes for him to roll around in like pigs do. I don't know why you'd wait until night to do that, but I mean, it's possible. Clearly, you don't want no one seeing what she was doing. I mean, maybe. Oh gosh, this this is this is just like fucking spider. Let me catch you in my trap. Mm -hmm. I love this next guy's name though. The next suitor was O. B. Budsberg. O. B. Budsberg. O. was an elderly widower from Yola, Wisconsin. That is not how I'd say that, but okay. He was last seen alive at <laughs> the LaPorte Savings Bank on April 6, 1907, when he mortgaged his Wisconsin land there, signing over a deed and obtaining several thousand dollars in cash. In cash. Ole's sons, Oscar and Matthew, had no idea that their father had even gone to LaPorte to visit Belle. When they finally discovered where he was, they wrote to Belle, and she promptly responded that she had never seen their father. So, just, I don't know who you're talking about, but I got his money. God almighty. And I mean, in the 1900s, I would just assume that, like, the way they even found out he had even went to LaPorte was probably from their local bank. That had the mortgage for his land there in Wisconsin. Right, and seen that it was transferred over to right. LaPorte. They were probably like, hey, he mortgaged his land here, and he said that he's in LaPorte County, Indiana. Like, that's where he's at, homie. Yeah. God, this is just, this is insanity. <laughs> Several other middle-aged men appeared and disappeared in visits to Bell's farm throughout 1907. And in December of 1907... These freaking names, man. Andrew Helgelion? Hel Helgelion? I've been pronouncing it Helgelion. Because, again, in my head, that's where it makes sense. L-I-E-N is like a lean. So, Helgelion. Helgelion. Whatever. Andrew, Andrew Helgelion. <laughs> a bachelor farmer from Aberdeen, South Dakota, wrote to her and was formally received. They exchanged many letters until Belle sent a letter that overwhelmed Andrew. 
The letter was dated January 13th, 1908, and it read, To the dearest friend in the world, no woman in the world is happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell when to like a person, and you I like better than anyone in the world I know. Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You, the sweetest man in the whole world. We will be all alone with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly. When I hear your name mentioned, and this is when one of the dear children speaks of you, or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song, it is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in wild rapture for you, my Andrew. I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. Literally kind of prepared to stay forever. Yeah, because you could be in a box <laughs> you ain't in the pig leaving. pen. You ain't going to leave. Yeah, no. So, in response to this letter, Andrew flew to her side by January 1908. He brought a check for $2,900, or $77,000 today, which was all of his savings that he had withdrawn from his local bank. A few days after Andrew arrived, he and Belle went to the savings bank in Laporte and deposited the check. Just a few days later, Andrew vanished, poof, but Belle went to the savings bank to make a $500 or $13,000 today deposit and to have another deposit of $700 or $19,000 in today's money made in the state bank. It was around this time that Belle started to have problems with her farmhand, Ray. I know we just kind of blew over Mr. Ray Lampier, but you see, Ray was deeply in love with Belle. He did any chore for her, no matter how gruesome, and he became jealous of all the men who arrived to court her, and he began making scenes. Belle fired him on the spot on February 3rd, 1908. She then went to the courthouse and declared that Ray was not in his right mind and was a menace to the public. Belle somehow convinced the authorities to hold a sanity hearing. Ray was found to be sane and was released. I mean, he is insane for being in love with her, but okay. No kidding. Uh, Belle returned a few days later to complain to the sheriff that Ray had visited her farm and argued with her. Belle reported that Ray posed a threat to her and her family, and she had him arrested for trespassing. But here's a question. She had all these men, mm-hmm. right, just to get their money. Why didn't she ever try to get his money? Did he not have shit? Girl, he was working for her. She knew he didn't have no money. She's throwing shekels. For him to shovel pig shit. She don't want him. And better yet, like, why didn't she ask him to help her bury bodies? We gonna get into that. Okay. We gonna get into that. Because you see, when Ray was released from jail, he returned over and over to see Belle, but she just kept turning him away. Ray would make thinly disguised... Ray would make thinly disguised... Yep, I'm reading that right. My brain's just not comprehending. Ray would make thinly disguised threats. He once said to another farmer, quote, Helgeline, meaning Andrew, won't bother me no more. We fixed him for keeps. Damn. End quote. So, not only is Ray crazy and probably poor, he is in love with Belle, who is the black widow 
of Laporte County that wants nothing more than to devour men and keep their money. So, Andrew had long disappeared from Laporte, or so it was believed. Now, his brother, Asla Helgeline, was concerned when Andrew failed to return home, so he wrote to Belle asking her about Andrew's whereabouts. Belle responded that Andrew was not at her farm, and he probably went to Norway to visit relatives. Asla then wrote back saying that he did not believe Andrew would do that, and he believed that Andrew was still in the Laporte area since that was the last place he was seen or heard from. And this lady, Belle Gunnis, Miss Brenhild, <laughs> has, like, there are no depths to her depravity. She's out to make a buck anywhere she can. So she tells him, she stands her ground and tells Asla that if he wanted to come and look for Andrew, she would be glad to help. But she also mentioned that searching for a missing person was a tall order to fill and that if he wanted her help, he should be prepared to pay her for her efforts. So she's just out here trying to make a quick buck off of anybody that'll do anything for her. She's like, listen, you piece of shit. I'm not going to tell you, but your brother's dead, and I already made $77,000 off of him. So if you want to come to LaPorte County, bring it. But you're going to have to pay up so I can help you look for him, even though I know you're not going to find him. <laughs> or you will be joining his grave. Exactly. So Asla does come to LaPorte, but he doesn't come until the spring. Now, going back to Ray. He continued to be an unresolved nuisance to Belle, and she was already preoccupied with... How do you say his name? Asla. Asla. Okay, so anyways. <laughs> and she was... so much. And she was already preoccupied with Asla, who was asking questions that could very well send her to the gallows. So, Belle told a lawyer in Laporte named M.E. Leliter? I said Leliter. Leliter? Leliter? Emmy Lelliter. <laughs> Whatever. That she feared for her life and that of her children. She told Emmy that Ray had threatened to kill her and burn her house down. And that she wanted to make out a will in case he went through with his threats. Emmy drew up her will and she left her entire estate to her children. Belle then went to one of the Laporte banks holding the mortgage for her property and paid it off. But she did not go to the police to tell them about Ray's alleged life-threatening conduct. Hmm... I wonder why. That's curious. I wonder why. Could it be that there were no threats? Hmm. Possibly. Anyways, in March of 1908, Belle sent several letters to a farmer and horse dealer in Topeka, Kansas, named Lon, named Lon Townsend, inviting him to visit her. Lon decided to put off his visit until the spring, so he did not see her before the fire at her farm. Sorry, we're full of spoilers today. Wonder why and who <laughs> set her whole farm on fire. I bet it was Ray. Mm. I bet it was Ray. Ah, sure. <laughs> Definitely Ray. So, Joe Maxson was hired to replace Ray on the farm in February of 1908, just after she had fired Ray. Joe woke up in the wee hours of April 28, 1908, smelling smoke in his room, which was on the second floor of Belle's house. He opened the hall door to just a wall of flames. He screamed for Belle and the children, but didn't get any answer. He slammed the door and leapt from the second story window of his room in nothing but his undies. 
He raced to town to get help, but by the time they got back there, because, you know, this is old, like, horse and buggy and Mm -hmm. them times, uh, the house was just a gutted heap of smoke and flames. Um, Ultimately, four bodies were found inside the house. One of the bodies was that of a woman who could not immediately be identified as Belle because uh, there was just one little thing called her head that was missing. Just gone. Um, also, the head was never found. So, mm. another spoiler. Um, the bodies of Belle's children were found still in their beds like they were sleeping. That's Which is happened. really sad. Ooh. And at this point, if we're keeping tally, Caroline and Axel died when they were just wee little ones. Mm-hmm. And then Jenny was sent off to a finishing school, a.k.a. the hog pen, um, for running her mouth. And the only two kids she has now at this point is Myrtle and Lucy. And it makes me really sad because those are really super cute names. And they were super cute kids. Check the photos out on Facebook and Instagram. They were cute kids. Anyways. The county sheriff had heard about race threats. And was like, huh, I remember her telling me something about that. He took one look at the house and immediately sought out the ex-handyman. Bell's lawyer, Emmy, also came forward to recount his tale about drawing up Bell's will and how she feared Ray would kill her and her family and burn her house down. Damn, you know what? This bitch really just planned the shit out of this. Like, she had a methodical plan of how to get what she fucking wanted. Oh, yeah, homie. Like, if, if I was ever going to do it, hashtag I'll never do it. But that this would be, like... You would have to plan this out very methodically. So, if Ray was innocent, he wasn't helping his case much. Because when the sheriff got to him and confronted him, the first thing Ray said was, Did Belle and the kids get out all right? Mmm. Mmm. Sus. So, Ray was then told about the fire, but did not having anything to do with it, claiming he was not near the farm when the fire happened. However, a local boy, John Sawyam, was brought in, and he said that he had been watching Belle's Place, which, weird. What is this little kid just doing watching somebody's house? No kidding. But maybe that's just another depth of the plot. Ooh. Ooh. Maybe she was like, you going to say that this man was on my property? Exactly. She probably tossed him a few shekels. Mm-hmm. Anyways, but he said that he had been watching the place, and he saw Ray running down the road from the house just before it erupted in flames. Now, remember, Joe did leap from the window in his undies and took off to town for help. So it could have been him, maybe. But then, like I just said, I just realized it very likely could have been another layer to her getaway plan. So, however, Ray was arrested and charged with murder and arson. Tons of investigators, sheriff's deputies, coroner's men, and many volunteers began to search the ruins for any evidence. The body of the headless woman was the biggest concern to LaPorte residents. A neighboring farmer and several others took one look at the charred remains of the body and said that it was not Bell's remains. Doctors then measured the remains, making allowances for the missing neck and head, and stated the corpse was that of a woman who stood 5 feet 3 inches tall and weighed no more than 150 pounds. You remember from earlier, we Mm -hmm. said that she was 6 feet tall and weighed 200 pounds. So that just doesn't add up. Right. The remains being Bell's was ruled out after detailed measurements of the body were compared with those of those on file at several of the port stores where she purchased her clothing. 
that's pretty a nifty little trick there. Like, let's they compare had, this with clothing that she usually buys. Exactly. That's, they had to dang. keep down, like, her measurements and stuff. So that's mm. smart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <sighs> Dr. J. Myers examined the internal organs of the dead woman. He sent the stomach contents to a pathologist in Chicago who reported months later that the organs contained lethal, lethal doses of citrine. Cit- what? Mm-hmm. Citronine is what I was going for. Don't know why that came out like that. <laughs> Citronine is how it came out. I mean, to me, it's strychnine, strychnine. I, I, yeah, I no. feel like strychnine is probably the right way. Yeah. For I don't know. I had like tangerine on my mind when That's I said okay. it. That's <laughs> okay. Uh, anyways, lethal doses of strychnine. Bell's dentist, Dr. Ira P. Norton, was brought in and said that if the dental work of the headless corpse had been located, he would definitely... He could definitely determine whether or not it was Belle. Yeah, no duh. Right? Dental records, what? But her, too bad the head's gone. No kidding. She, hmm, huh, thought out plot. Anyways. Exactly. To help sort through the debris, debris on site, a former miner was hired to build a sluice, which was a way to get water in to wash through the remains. As the process went on, more and more bodies were being discovered. Go figure. And on May 19th, 1908, a piece of bridge work was found that had two human canine teeth with the roots still attached. Hmm. The teeth were porcelain and had gold crown work in between. Dr. Norton identified the teeth as belonging to Belle. Coroner Charles Mack officially concluded that the adult female body discovered in the rooms was Belle Gunness. Which, how funny is it that they're pulling out whole bodies from this fire? Uh, her head, if this headless corpse is Belle, how is it that the head's gone but there's just teeth left behind? Yeah. Makes no sense. And you know, if, if you really just want you wanting all the money to run away and stuff, I'd rip out my teeth too. Fuck it. I barely got any left, so that'd be an easy task. Um, so remember Asla, Andrew's brother? Well, he finally made it to LaPorte County and told the sheriff that he believed that Andrew had met with foul play at Bell's hands. Joe, the farmhand, then also came forward with information that couldn't be ignored. He told the sheriff that Bell had ordered him to bring loads of dirt by wheelbarrow to a large area where the hogs were fed. Going to the hog pen. Mm-hmm. So, Joe said there were many areas of the ground that were sunken in and had been covered by dirt, but Belle had told Joe that those holes contained trash and she wanted the ground level, so he took the dirt and did as he was told. Trash? Yeah, just trash. Mm. Trash, you know, the trash attached to the cash. Belle. Anyways. The sheriff then took a dozen men back to the farm and began digging in the hog pen. They first discovered the body of Jenny Olson. Then they found the small bodies of two unidentified children. And I don't know who these children were unless it unless it was children of the other men that she brought in. That's possible. Because um, it never really said in any detail who these children were. And I, I'm imagining if Caroline and Axel, they died when they were little, their bodies wouldn't be there. Because the insurance paid up for them, so I'm sure there was some kind of service, funeral, whatever, done for them. I doubt they would just end up in the hog pen. And if it said Myrtle and Lucy, which were her only other two children, were found inside the home in Mm -hmm. the beds, 
It's hard to say. So who knows who, who's, who's Bobe's those or, are. Or you know what? Maybe like she had to kill like Jenny's friends that she, whenever she like said, my mama killed my dad. Yeah, it could be. So she had to just get all the witnesses out of the way. So I, I don't I don't know who these kids are. So anyways, eventually the body of Andrew Helgleam was discovered. And side note, they found that good old Ray had been just going around wearing Andrew's coat as well as some other personal effects from some of the other victims, like watches. See, that's kind of, that just gave me the heebie-jeebies. So, um, that. so he was he was definitely aware of what was going on because he even said, "Remember to the other farmer, like, you know, don't worry about Helgling. We fixed him for keeps. Like, he ain't gonna bother us no more." Yeah, he's like so her, he was. He was like her little henchman. Exactly, he was involved to a certain extent. It's like, maybe he had Munchausen syndrome. Maybe or maybe he was it just, was like... Is Munchausen the right word? No, that's not the right word. Maybe it's the right word. Like where you... Like fall in love with your cat? Yeah, yeah It's right. Munchausen? Okay. Yeah. But what if like... No, I thought no, Munchausen... That's, Munchausen's the illness. Yeah, keeps somebody sick. That's um... Oh. I'm just gonna Google it. Oh my god, what is it? Fall in love with... Oh, oh. Captor. Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome. There we go. Maybe he had, like, Stockholm Syndrome because she was the one that controlled the coin. And she was evil when she was doing these things. So, like, maybe at some extent, like, he was scared of her, so he fell in love with her. Or was it that he didn't really know what happened? And she was, like, saying that they, like, ran away or whatever. But I got you these new clothes that they left behind. Could have been. Could have been. But... Regardless, as the days went on, one body after another was discovered in Bell's hog pen. They found the remains of Olby Budsberg, Thomas Limbo, Henry Gerhold, Olaf Svenrud, John Moe, and Olaf Lindblom. Two things here. One, there's a lot of Olafs. Two, um, some of these people we didn't even cover in the story because they didn't seem like main characters. Um, they are still very much victims, obviously. Um, like Thomas Limbro, uh, Henry Gunholt, or Gerholt, Olaf Svenrud, um, and Olaf Lindblom. Like, they weren't in the main story, but though, those were some of the remains that they were able to identify. However, some other possible victims included William Mingay, Herman Conitzer, Charles Edmund, George Berry, Christy Hilkvin, Charles Nyberg, John H. McJunkin, Olaf Jensen, Henry Bisga, Burt Chase, Tons Peterson, George Bradley, T.J. Tiefland, Frank Reidinger, Emil Tell, Lee Porter, John E. Hunter, George Williams, Ludwig Stoll, Abraham Phillips, Benjamin Carling, August Gunderson, O. Olson, Lindler Nicholson, Andrew Anderson, and Johan Sorensen. So quite a few people that could also be possible victims and then there were also at least six other unnamed victims that could have possibly died on bell's farm so So, like her tally is up there like um not to mention the fact that like how big was this fucking hog pen i mean maybe maybe that's all she maybe that's all she ran was a hog farm you know so it could have been a huge area yeah. I mean, or she's just digging really deep fucking holes. I mean, she was a huge woman that was just slinging trunks, and I'm assuming that's probably why she put their bodies in. I'm assuming. Sure. So. <sighs> On May 22nd, 1908, Ray was tried for murder and arson. 
He denied the charges and his defense hinged on the assertion that the woman's body that was found was not Bell's. Ray's lawyer developed evidence that contradicted Dr. Norton's identification of the teeth and bridge work. A local jeweler testified that though the gold in the bridge work had emerged from the fire almost undamaged, the fierce heat had melted the gold plating on several watches and items of gold jewelry, which raised questions. Huh. Local doctors replicated the conditions and found that the real teeth crumbled and disintegrated. The porcelain teeth came out very damaged and the gold parts partially melted. There were reports that the bridge work was planted just before it was, quote, discovered. Mm-hmm. Ray was found guilty of arson, but acquitted of murder. And on November 26, 1908, he was sentenced to 20 years in the state prison. And a year later, he died of tuberculosis on December 30th, 1909. Which would suck. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't think, I don't know. I don't think that he started the fire. I really don't. Do I think maybe he took part in some way, shape, or form of all these murders? Yeah, so. Mm, he's he's like, a, he's definitely probably some kind of accessory, if yeah. nothing else. Like, he knew what happened to Andrew Helgeline, so yeah. I would say, I mean, just, even just knowing it and not reporting it, like, yeah. what is that? interfering with the police investigation withholding evidence or something like that but prior to his death he confessed bell's crimes to a reverend and maintained that she was still alive ray said that he had not murdered anyone but that he had helped bell bury many of her victims so there is his culpability and all of it he helped her in that in that sense but Ray said that when male suitors would arrive at the home, she would make them comfortable, charm them, and cook them a large meal. She then drugged their coffee, and when they were in a stupor, she split their heads with a meat chopper. <laughs> Damn! Simple. Easy. Not clean. Easy enough. Yeah. Um, sometimes she would wait for them to go to bed and then enter the bedroom by candlelight and chloroform them. Um, Belle would then carry the body to the basement, because remember, she's built like a linebacker. She's huge. Um, she would place it on a table and then she would dissect them. She would bundle the remains up and bury them in the hog pen and the grounds around the house. And to save time, she sometimes poisoned their coffee with strychnine. She didn't want to do all the, you know, expend too much energy because she was still going to have to move them, you know, all that. Oh, yeah. So difficult when you're killing someone. Uh Uh-huh. Ray even said that if Belle was overly tired after killing one of her victims, she would just chop up the remains and feed them to the hogs. Which I feel would take a lot more effort. It would take more effort. Than just dropping them in a trunk, burying them, and being done with it. But in a way, it's a little bit cleaner to feed them to the hogs than bury them because... I mean, yeah, you're not going to find them. shit. And you're pigs eat them. everything. Yeah. They're not quite like hyenas. Hyenas will eat the bones and everything. Pigs won't. But we talk about hog farm, not out here in the Savannah Desert. So, yeah, true. But that's, I mean, and if she did that, it's hard to say how many other possible victims there were. Oh, exactly. So, Ray also cleared up the mysterious question of the headless body found in the ruins of Belle's home. She had lured this woman in from Chicago on the pretense of hiring her as a housekeeper only days before she planned to make her permanent escape from the port. Ray stated that Belle had drugged the woman, bashed in her head, and decapitated the body, taking the head to a swamp where she threw it into the deep water. Ray then said that Belle chloroformed her children, smothered them, and dragged their small bodies to the basement. Which makes no sense if she drugged the kids down there or if she was just going to put them back in their beds. Yeah. 
But Ray said that Belle dressed the female body in her old clothing, removed her false teeth, and placed them beside the body to make sure it was identified as herself. She then torched the house and ran. Ray said she had not left by the road where he waited for her after the fire had been set. So going back to that little boy, it's very likely he could have seen Ray waiting for her because maybe Belle had filled Ray's head with all this mumbo jumbo like, listen, I've got to report you to the police. This is what has to be done so we can make a clean getaway together. Because mm-hmm, you're my for life. Yeah, but then she, she just lied and she abandoned him. Um, he said that she, instead of taking the road where he was waiting for her, she cut across open fields and disappeared into the woods. She was like, fuck this shit. I don't need you. Goodbye. She's like, I'm out of here. I got my money bags and I'm leaving. Shit. Ray said that Belle was a rich woman, that she had murdered 42 men by his count, and that she had accumulated more than $250,000 or $6.6 million in today's money. $6.6 million. I can't even imagine. And you know what the scary thing is, though? Really? Even the inflation calculator that I was using, it would only let me go back to 1914. And all of this, like, the latest was what, 1908 was when Ray was sent to prison. He died in 1909. Like, I couldn't even go back that far. So, it's hard to say. It it could have been more. It could have been more than $6.6 million. But, I mean. Still. She's got a shit ton of cash. Yeah. So... She had small amounts remaining in one of her savings accounts, but local banks later admitted that she had withdrawn most of her funds shortly before the fire. The fact that Belle withdrew most of her money suggested that she was planning to get gone and stay gone. And she absolutely fucking did. Yeah, she yeah. was like, I, like, I'm just impressed with how methodical this woman was. Like, she literally made a plan months in advance to mm. set it all in action to make it look one way or another yeah for her own game and you know what kills me though like when you look up you know everybody will say oh there's more male serial killers than there are female serial okay that might be true like statistically that's true yeah okay but on none of the lists i don't think i've ever seen bell gunness's name on any of them Mm -mm. i don't think i have either because I was just doing a Google search like this is interjecting here. Um, my thought process is I try to like just Google like true crime cases I've never heard of or something like that. And I, for the next few episodes, uh, we're going to be covering some ones that maybe y'all haven't heard of. Um, so that's exciting um, and kind of scary. Like doing the notes. I can't sleep anymore. It'll be all right. (laughs) (sighs) So anyways, Belle was for several decades allegedly seen in cities and towns throughout the United States. And friends, acquaintances, and detectives apparently spotted her on the streets of Chicago, San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles. As late as 1931, Belle was reported to be alive and living in a Mississippi town where she supposedly owned a great deal of property and lived like a queen. For more than 20 years, sheriffs received an average of two reports a month that she had been seen. So much so that she became part of American criminal folklore. Which is crazy. I mean, she was like FBI's Miss Wanted list before there was FBI's Miss Wanted list. Right. 
<laughs> I mean, that's, I, I mean, shit. I think it would be weird for some woman, a woman in those mm. times to come into a town and like buy up a bunch of shit and live like a queen. I think it was probably weird enough that she came in as a single mother with cash. Well, I, she didn't come in as a single mother. She was married when they moved, but then her husband died. Mm -hmm. So I guess, I don't know. Maybe that's not too that's not too fishy, but yeah. So, anyways, the headless body was never positively identified, and Belle's true fate is unknown. Laporte residents were divided between either believing that she was killed by Ray or that she faked her own death and made a getaway. The body believed to be that of Belle Gunnis was buried next to her first husband at Forest Home Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois. And on November 5th, 2007, with the permission of a descendant of Belle's sister, the headless body was exhumed from its grave by a team of forensic anthropologists and graduate students from the University of Indianapolis in an effort to learn her true identity. Unfortunately, there was no, there was not enough DNA there, so efforts continued to find a reliable source for comparison purposes. And with that, that is the tale of the Mistress of Murder Hill. That is how Belle you become a gold digger in the 1900s. Exactly. God. Just come from Norway. <laughs> Murder. Make sure there's a paper trail showing where you've went. Marry a couple guys. Let them die under mysterious circumstances that apparently back in the 1900s nobody questioned. Get you a henchman. Get you a henchman that's going to keep his mouth shut. Make him think you love him. Give them your victim's clothing after you kill them. And then lie to them because he's an idiot. <laughs> and run away. And go so, live like a queen down in Mississippi. If that's even where she was. So, Belle, Gunnis, wherever you are, well, you're probably nowhere now. You're, you're dead. But whoever you were, wherever you ended up, you a bad bitch. You uh, evaded the FBI's most wanted list when there wasn't one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, that is all that we have for you ghouls and gals today. Um, as always, please, please go show Cassie Malay over at Eastern Crime Zone some love. And we have a Facebook sell up. It's live there. All of our merch is 50% off. We're going to keep that running until we can try and get rid of it. Because we're looking to bring you guys some more exciting things. In both the way we record and do things. And merch options. So, buy our stuff. And if you don't want to do that, feel free to make a donation. Because yes. we appreciate that too. <laughs> Anything helps, literally. We have, we have really got to get better mics. Like that is something that's killing me. Oh yeah, that's like one of the first things that we really need to do. Um, but yeah, like we decided to get serious. We got to be serious. So we're gonna try and bring you guys your weekly episode of Two Jane Doe, so you can listen to us babble and rant and go down rabbit holes. And keep you entertained. So, Absolutely. As always, stay safe. Don't die. Catch you next time. Later. Bye.